I'm sitting here looking out my window My life is in a world That squirrel out on the woodpile Has no worry in the world The mockingbird sitting on the peach tree limb Gently swaying in the breeze He's spreading his wings and he's lifting his voice Singing a hallelujah chorus I'm sitting here thinking Contemplating all I've got to do This day is so busy, I'm wondering how I'm gonna make it through. I'm living in the rat race, faces and places to see. I've been singing the same song much too long and way off key. Slow down and see your reality You're taking care of birds and squirrels And you're taking care of me So remind me, Lord There's a mockingbird sitting on a peach tree limb Gently swaying in the breeze He's spreading his wings and he's lifting his voice Singing a hallelujah chorus Yeah, he's spreading his wings And he's lifting his voice Singing a hallelujah chorus <laughs> All right, I could play all night But I'm not going to do that <laughs> One more. I wrote this song for a blind lady. I've never seen the sunrise on a September morn. I've never seen the gathering clouds of an evening storm I've never seen the lightning flash against a purple sky I may not see what you can see but I have seen God's plan for me I've seen God's hand transform a man oh the wonder of his grace the glory of his face I've seen his love Mend a broken heart No, I can't see what you can see But I have seen God's plan for me Cause I have seen 
the hand of God. Whoa, yeah, yeah. I've never seen the mountains in their majesty. I've never seen the oceans from sea to shining sea. I've never seen a springtime bloom or a budding tree. No, I may not see what you can see, but I have seen God's plan for me. I've seen God's hand transform a man. Oh, the wonder of His grace the glory of his face i've seen his love mend a broken heart no i can't see what you can see but i have seen god's plan for me cause i have seen the hand of god whoa given me the eyes of faith to see, and God has given me a glimpse of eternity. I've seen God's hand transform a man, oh, the wonder of His grace, the glory of His face. I've seen His love. Mend a broken heart No, I can't see what you can see But I have seen God's plan for me Cause I have seen the hand of God Oh, the hand of God Yes, I have seen God's hand Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Amen. Ah. Oh, don't get me started. I play all night. I've been having withdrawals because that's the first time I picked up a guitar since Saturday. And uh, I usually try to play two or three hours a day. And uh, so I've been having guitar withdrawals. Thank you for listening and thank you for being patient with my bad habits. <laughs> I'll tell you what, that song that I wrote uh, about the mockingbird sitting on a peach tree limb, I got it one morning and I was just looking out the window at the house. And I saw a squirrel out under the big live oak tree outside our bedroom window. And I said, that squirrel is not worried about a thing. And I don't know where the line came from, uh, a mockingbird sitting on a peach tree limb. I just guess God gave it to me. And uh, so uh, I sat down and I, I wrote that song and then uh, I started playing it around a little bit. 
And uh, I ask, always ask my wife what she thinks about my music, and she gives me the honest opinion, says, sounds like another Stan song to me. But uh, it is kind of a neat thought that God is watching over us all the time, and you know, sometimes we get so caught up in what's going on and living in the rat race and all that that we forget that God is watching over us and taking care of us. And then the second song that I sang was a song I wrote for Miss Ann James. Uh, her husband's a pastor of a little old bitty church out in Chatham, Alabama, and she is blind, born blind, and uh, she uh, has a beautiful voice to sing. And she said, Stan, you've got to write me a song. And so uh, I was fiddle-faddling around with guitar, and she called me. She said, have you written my song yet? And I said, Miss Ann, I haven't written it yet. And so after a day or two, I got to fiddling around with the tune and the idea of, you know, the things that she cannot see, but yet the things that we see and we take for granted. But then at the same time, I've never seen anyone with such a dynamic faith in the Lord as she is. And so, you know... May God give us all eyes of faith to see, you know, and get that glimpse of eternity. So thank you all for letting me play a little bit and uh, uh, kind of get back in the groove some. But tonight we're going to take the ses session two, and uh, I wanted to say thank you to uh, Scott's staff, these ladies who've worked diligently to put our notes together. And uh, I just want you to know how much I appreciate them and they took my feeble efforts and made it look pretty good, in my opinion. So uh, you have your outline here. I am going to just review for just a moment where we were last night. I just wanted to remind you one, uh, one of one thing because it's important as we go to session two on the moral test that we understand once more and kind of get this in our mind uh, about the... Uh, what John was combating. He was com combating uh, the false teachers. And they had come into the church, and as a result of their teaching, they had disrupted the fellowship. For one thing, people were at odds against each other because of that. And not only that, they had created confusion about the assurance of salvation. And John tells us his purpose is that he's writing to give assurance. And he says, this is how you know that you know that you know Jesus. He said, the one who has the Son of God, who believes in the name of the Son of God, has the life. He who does not believe does not have the life. And he's echoing what Jesus said. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Gospel of John and you look at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you see so many parallels between the Gospel of John and, and 1, 2, and 3 John. You just see that what John is doing is just echoing Jesus' teaching. And in that statement about this is how you know that you know, he's really echoing John 14, 6, when Jesus said, uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That might seem narrow, but it's not. The, the gate is open for anyone who will receive the Lord Jesus. But we must come by the way of the cross. We must come to faith and believing him and then devoting our lives to live for Christ. And so these false teachers had come in. They denied the reality of Christ's incarnation. And as a result of that, there were all kinds of moral issues that were going on, as well as confusion in theology. So I would say like A.W. Tozer, but just a little twist in it, what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. If you're wrong there, you're going to be wrong. Uh, it's kind of like when I sight in my rifle. 
if I'm an inch off at 100 yards, when it gets out there to 500 yards, I'm going to miss my target by a mile. So you've got to be solid in your relationship with Christ. You've got to be on target with Jesus. And when you're on target there, you will find that, yeah, you'll have some struggles, you'll have some issues and things, but you will have the foundation that you need to carry you through those struggles and those issues. Now, the false teachers, I just wanted to review one more time some of the things that they were saying. They were saying things like this, you can live a sinful lifestyle and continue to be in right relationship with God. We hear that today in our society. They said one can live above sin, which, in which sin no longer has any influence. In other words, they were saying you can attain this state of sinless perfection. And by the way, we will one day attain the state of sinless perfection. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, I'm persuaded, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he's going to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. One of these days, we're going to be fully complete when we stand before the Lord, and that's going to be a wonderful thing. Until then, we're on a journey, and that journey has kind of has some ups and downs, but I hope it's like Jacob's ladder, that every rung goes higher, higher, that, yeah, we struggle with things, but yet as we move through this journey called life, that we're growing closer in our relationship with the Lord and in our relationships with one another. Another thing they were saying is that sin is dictated by society and not by God. It's society that determines what is right and what is wrong and not God. And we know that that is being heard today in psychology and, and all of those things as people trying to figure out what's wrong, but we know what's wrong. We're sinners and we're sinners by nature and by choice. And that old sin shows up, doesn't it? And, and, and so they're saying those things like that. The flesh is evil. The spirit is good. Jesus couldn't have come into the flesh in the flesh because that would have been evil. And so the spirit is good. So I can do with this old flesh, anything I want to do. And it has no bearing on my spirituality because what really is important is the spirit and not the flesh. You can see where all those problems would come from as a result of that. And then this one is the enlightened ones are spiritually superior. Last night, I, I made a statement about, uh, about that deal about being spiritually superior. You might remember me saying this, that you cannot truly love those, well, we cannot truly love those we believe are of inferior status. What we need to understand is this. Every one of us who have come to Christ, we came the same way. We came when we realized that we were sinners, that we could not save ourselves, that we needed a Savior. We turned from our sin and we asked Christ to come into our hearts and be our Savior and our Lord. I remember I was in church in Jackson, Mississippi, when an African-American gentleman joined the church in the, in the mid-1970s. And I'll always remember what Frank Pollard said on that occasion. He said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Let's welcome my brother into the fellowship of the family of God. And so we understand that, uh, that God meets us all where we are. Aren't you glad? I am so glad that Jesus loves me. And we sang that little song. Let's sing that together. I am so glad that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me. I am so glad that Jesus loves me, Jesus loves even me. And I'm so glad, aren't you? 
And so it's by the grace of God. Now tonight we're going to go and look at the second test that John gives. The first test was the test of theology. Tonight we deal with the moral test. And the moral test concerns how we deal with sin in our lives. We are saved by the grace of God. And we start a process. We start walking with him. And one of the things that we have to do as we walk with Jesus is to deal effectively with sin in our lives. Has anybody here attained perfection? Anybody, would you raise your hand? I'll put mine down and stick it in my back pocket. Uh, none of us have, and we know that the Christian life is a journey, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes it just doesn't happen. Sometimes we do the right thing, and sometimes we, we do the wrong thing. We're kind of like Paul when he wrote Romans chapter 7. He says, you know, the desire is within me. To, I, I want to do, do God's will. I want to obey him. But he said, I find something else going on inside. There's a battle that's going on inside. And he said, I'm hard-pressed. You know, how do I handle this? And then he goes on to say, and I love this, he says, but thanks be to God who gives me the victory through Jesus Christ, my Lord. How many of you know 1 John 1, 9 by heart? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we look at John, and this was one of the struggles that I had in preparing to share with you uh, these sessions, and, and this, that I really struggle with this. John deals with the issue of sin twice. In chapter 1, starting at verse 5 and going through chapter 2, verse 2, he deals with the problem of sin. Then in chapter 3, beginning at verse 4 and going for a while, he addresses this again. And so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, now, if I go through this study with my church family in Wimberley, Texas, and we start repeating ourselves, it won't be long before you say, well, this is beginning to be redundant. And I was really struggling with that, and so I called Scott, and I said, Scott, I've outlined this teaching uh, verse by verse, but I'm just not comfortable with this. What do you think? And he bailed me out again. And uh, he, I said, now, I can deal with this by looking at the tests that John gives us that we can use to evaluate our walk with the Lord. We can look at the theology test, the moral test, the social test, the obedience test. And he says, son, that's the way you need to go. And so that's what we're doing. So the moral test, he deals with sin. So there's the theological truth that's underlying the doctrine of sin. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. And you'll see that, uh, that Jesus appeared in order to take away sin and in him that is in Christ, there is no sin. Then he says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him and know him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. I'm looking at the wrong scripture. Excuse me. I'm at the, I was on the wrong page. Wow, I knew something was wrong. Isn't it fun? <laughs> oh, goodness. He says in verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, the theological truth that's underlying this doctrine of sin is the truth that God is light, and God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is absolutely holy. There is nothing evil in the person of the Lord, and we see that over and over again. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple, he saw the holiness of God. And in the light of God's holiness, he saw his own sinfulness. And in the light of God's holiness, he cried out and said, I'm undone. I'm doomed. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips because he saw the holiness and the glory of God. You see, when we understand that God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, then in the light of who he is, we see ourselves and we see the truth that we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of his holiness. And so when we see who he is, we begin to see who we are as well. A lot of Sunday mornings, I will get up really early and uh, I will be, be still, and in the darkness of my room, I will get ready to go preach wherever I'm preaching on Sunday. This Sunday, I'm preaching at a little church called uh, Gatesville Baptist Church. We'll be lucky if we have 20 people in attendance. But I will be there, and I will share with them just like I'm sharing with you. And, uh, but I get up, and I put on my shoes, and in the darkness of that room, they look pretty good. But boy, when I walk out in the sunlight and I look down, I said, you know, I should have shined my shoes. And the truth is, the closer we get to the Lord, the more we're going to realize how much we need His grace in our lives. And so God is, is, is light. Now, the second theology is where I wanted to go to, and that is God is love, 1 John 4, 16. In 1 John 4, 16, uh, John just simply says this, And we have come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Because God loves us, and because God is love, he took the initiative to deal with our sin problem. Now, here's something about assurance. I talked to a person one time who didn't believe in the assurance of salvation. They felt like they could lose their salvation. So let's talk about it for a minute. Can you lose your salvation? Can you trust Jesus and then lose your salvation? What do you think? Now, there's some folks who, who believe, and this fellow believed that if you, you know, if you, if you didn't stay on, on par, you're you going to lose salvation. Now, let's think about that. Why is that not true? i tell you why. Because salvation is not what we've done. It's what God's done for us. See, God took the initiative in salvation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're all sinners, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, there's a lot of people who think that God writes down everything they've ever done. He writes it in a book. And they think when they stand before God that God's going to open the book. He's going to find their name. So let's just use my name. I'm standing before God, and God opens the book and says, Oh, Stan Weatherford. Let's see about Stan. <laughs> Starts flipping page. <laughs> he said, Well, Stan, I see you've done a lot of good things. So I'm proud of you on that regard, but he turns the page and says, Oh, Stan, I see you've done some bad things too. And now I'm sweating now. And now what I'm thinking is this. I sure hope I've done more good things than bad things. Because if I've done enough good things, God's going to let me into heaven. What's the problem with that? How many sins does it take to make a sinner? A whole bunch or just one? Just one. Something's got to be done about this, doesn't it? And so my sin separates me from God. But what did God do about it? God loved me so much that he sent Jesus. What did Jesus do? Peter said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The just for the unjust that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did I do that or did God do that? What did I do? I accepted what God did for me. That's what I did. I accepted the gift of eternal life. I didn't save myself. Who did it? God did. And listen, if our salvation is an act done by God, can we lose it? That's why Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, is has given them, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Listen, if you've truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have received the gift of eternal life. And you're His. And you don't have to live in doubt or confusion if you've truly accepted Christ. That's why we started Sunday, Friday, Saturday night, Sunday, where we did. The assurance of your salvation, of my salvation, starts with the foundation of the relationship that we have with Jesus when we trusted him as our Lord and Savior. And you grow from there. But we still have to deal with this sin problem in our lives. And so, let's, uh, with that in mind, God is like God is love. We, we need to understand, yes, we're saved by the grace of God, and we are growing in that grace and yet we still have to deal with sin in our lives. Now, John gives us the nature of sin. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, and then in verse chapter uh, 3, verse 4. In 8 and 10, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. And the words that he uses for sin here indicate sin as rebellion against God. And that's what sin is. Now, I understand the truth that we are born with a sinful nature. You know how I know that? I have a three-year-old granddaughter. Need I say more? And I realize that the truth that we are sinners by nature and by choice and sin basically is saying, I want my way instead of God's way. I want to live the way I want to live. 
with careless disregard for what God has to say. And so in these verses, sin is seen as rebellion against God. It is going our own way. Isaiah would say this, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each one turned to our own way. And then he goes on, he says, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all as he talks about Jesus. 600 years before Jesus came and died on the cross. That's God, isn't it? And so sin is rebellion, but sin is also lawlessness. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So what we need to understand is that sin is not just missing the mark. It's not just falling short. It is also active rebellion against God. Now, God gave us the Ten Commandments. Uh, Judy told me today that her pastor's preaching through the Ten Commandments. Now, every one of those commandments are stated negatively, but they're stated negatively for a positive reason. You realize that? God says, don't do these things. Now, if you want to mess up your life and you want to have pain and problems and all, you live against God's law and you'll find yourself in a, in a lot of different situations. So he says, you do these things and you will live and you will prosper and you will know that, uh, that I'm God. That doesn't mean that we won't have problems and issues in life, but it does mean that we will be w walking with God in right fellowship with him. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to bring it to its fulfillment. Where, where does sin start? Where does it begin? It begins in the heart, doesn't it? In the mind. It begins with a thought. And it begins, then it follows with a deed. Now, he's going to tell us that the source of sin is Satan himself. He said the old devil, he sinned from the beginning. If you look at chapter 3 and, and you look at, at what he says in verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. The one who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He goes on and he says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And he says, the devil is the one who sinned from the beginning. And he's, he's at the, the source of all our, our sin. It started in the garden, didn't it? When Adam and Eve sinned against God. And uh, we followed in that same footsteps. And so we must remember that sin, the nature of sin, is not just missing the mark, but also active rebellion against God. So let's turn from that for a second. With that in mind, let's talk about the nature of temptation, the nature of temptation. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul said, put on the full armor of God that you may withstand the wiles of the devil the fiery darts of the devil. The devil's chunking at you. He's throwing things your way. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to find a crack in your armor, and he wants to gain a toehold in your life. We're going to talk about habitual sin in just a moment, but he wants to gain a toehold in your life. And if he can gain a toehold in your life, and it always starts small, it's a little thing. 
If he can gain a toehold, then he'll start working on building a stronghold in your life. And the next thing you know, you've got something in your life that doesn't need to be there. And it's called a besetting sin. And you've got to deal with it. So, what about the nature of temptation? Now, notice this. John chapter 2. Look at what he says here in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He talks about temptation here. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. When you look at that, you realize the truth that Jesus was tempted in every way, even as we are tempted yet without sin. Listen, there's a bunch of different ways to sin. And there's a bunch of different sins. And we could probably sit here and talk about those sins. But there's only really three sources of temptation. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Now, every sin, every temptation falls under one of those three categories. Turn these stones into bread. Satisfy your physical desires in a way that does not honor God. The lust of the flesh. Climb up on the, uh, on the pinnacle of the temple and cast yourself down. You could be somebody. Everybody will flock to you because you're a miracle worker. Boastful pride of life. Mm. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Let's go up on this mountain. Look out there. I'll give you every bit of this if you'll bow down and worship me. The lust of the eyes. Now, I'm going to help you identify where the devil's got you. Now, how, you, how am I going to do that? I'm going to say a word, and the first thing that comes to your mind is probably the area where you struggle. Deal? All right, here we go. Here's the word. Temptation. That's the word. And most of us can realize that when we hear the word temptation, there's something that immediately comes to my mind and said, that's where I'm struggling. That's where it is. And we're either struggle with temptation in the area of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. There are two words that are spelled with I in the middle. Sin and pride. Those two. And when we start looking at temptation and we start looking at sin, it comes, to, it comes down to those things. Adam and Eve in the garden. What did Satan do? He appealed in all three ways. Look at this fruit. 
Look at this fruit. It's desirable. It is. It's beautiful. It's desirable. Look here. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't God tell you that, uh, you know, no, I'm not supposed to eat of that fruit, but <laughs> wait, wait a minute. God's just withholding things from you. <laughs> you need to indulge this flesh. And then what happened? They hid themselves. Old pride came in. And then the blame game started. And I know you heard Scott say this, and I've heard this several times. You know where that goes. Man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the man. Or, or, or the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Have y'all heard that before? <laughs> yeah. Y'all heard, heard that. And so it follows the same pattern every time. So there's many different sins, but temptation just comes in these three forms. But the source of all temptation is Satan himself. That's why Peter says, be on your guard, be on the alert. The devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil wants to eat our lunch. He wants to destroy our lives. He wants to destroy our spiritual influence. I can tell you this, you won't lose, you can't lose your salvation. It's the act of God. It's what God's done. But you can sure destroy your spiritual influence. And Satan wants to render all of us ineffective as we seek to deal uh, with uh, issues in our lives. And so this is the nature of temptation. But what about the improper ways of dealing with sin? Now, in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, we can deny the reality of sin. We can, we can say that sin is not really sin. And, and we can do that in a lot of different ways. We can say, well, this is just a bad habit. Or, or we might say something like, uh, God made me this way. And, and because it, it, sin really isn't it's sin, it, it's, it's not, it's just, it's just who I am. And we can deny its reality. But we can also regard sin as insignificant. In verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, we can say sin is the result of what society has said. It, it has no bearing whatever on, on, my, on my life. And uh, it is totally insignificant. And I'm telling you in our day what we're doing and I see it all the time, and you're seeing this too, is that we're rationalizing away the reality of sin. We're watering it down and saying it's not significant. Sin has no bearing in our life. Sin is, is not sin at all. And unfortunately, what we're doing is we're justifying the sin instead of the sinner. We're declaring that God's all right with a sin. And I can tell you this, he's not. He's not. So in dealing with sin, we can deny its reality. We can regard it as insignificant. Or we can place the blame on outside influences. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. It's because of what someone else did. It's because of the decision someone else made. 
It's because, and it's because, and it's because, and we can blame everyone else instead of accepting responsibility for our own sin and for our own decisions and for our own actions. The prodigal son in the pig pen of life said to his father, I want what's mine. Give me what's mine. That's rebellion. Give me what's mine. What did he do? He took what was his. He went to a foreign country and had all kinds of great friends for a while until he wasted all his substance. And, and once he was out of everything, where did he find himself? He found himself in the pig pen. He was wallering with the pigs. And remember, this was a good Jewish boy. And how did Jews, Jewish boys feel about pigs? In other words, what Jesus said, this guy went as low as he could go. He was in the hog pen of life. Three realities about sin. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin will do. But the great reality of the boy in the pig pen was this. The best decision he made was, I will get up and go to my father. And you see, sin... The greatest day in our lives is when we realize that we're sinners. We quit blaming everybody else. We quit blaming our circumstances. We even quit blaming God. And we own up to the personal responsibility that, Lord, it is me. It is me, oh Lord. It is me. I'm the problem. It's when a man looks in the mirror like I do and, and discovers the enemy. I'm the problem. God, it's me. And when we realize that it's, that it's, it's the decisions we've made, it's not somebody else's fault. It's a great day in our lives because that's when you can deal with sin in your life. And so 1 John 1, 9 is the verse that's sandwiched in the middle here that how you deal effectively with sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and forgive us of all unrighteousness. Confession means to be honest with God. I sat down in the house in Cuba with Fidel, not Castro, but with Fidel and Ernesto. Fidel and Ernesto. Fidel is the trainer for the Santiago professional baseball team. He's not, he wasn't a believer. Ernesto just happened to be there listening in on the conversation. And I started talking to Fidel and to Ernesto and engaging them and started talking to them about Jesus. And I started sharing with them, just like I shared with you just a moment ago, that we can't save ourselves, that we're sinners by nature and by choice. I took my Bible and used the illustration about God writing down everything that we've ever done. And I said, Fidel, how many 
how many sins does it take to make a sinner? He said, just one. And, and I said, finally, I said, D would you like to receive Christ? And he said, see. <laughs> he said, yes. I said, Ernesto, would you like to pray to receive Christ? Yes. Yes. I said, well, the first thing you need to do is be honest with God and to admit to God that you're a sinner. And confession is being honest with God. And it's a wonderful thing that if we are honest with God and we confess our sin, what's God going to do? He's going to cleanse us. He's going to forgive us. Because God is faithful and God is just. What does that mean? What has God promised us? That if we'll confess, what will He do? He's faithful to keep His Word. And you know what? He's just, which means He's going to do the right thing, not once, but every time. He's going to deal with us in a righteous way. One of my best friends in the world was a black pastor named Price Wilson. I was a young guy. He was an older guy. Price put his arm around me as a young pastor, and he, and he gave me some wisdom and some encouragement. He pastored the Jerusalem Baptist Church in Chipley, Florida. We would go up to Jerusalem once a year to have a national day of prayer. The next year, they'd come down to Shiloh, and we would have the national day of prayer. But I always looked forward to going to Price's church because there was a lady up there that could make the best German chocolate cake I've ever eaten in my life. <laughs> but I remember old Price praying a prayer one night about God's grace. And this is what he said. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you've not dealt with us according only to your justice. For, Lord, if you'd only dealt with us according to your justice, we could not stand before you. But, God, thank you that you dealt with us according to your mercy. By your grace, you extend to us your forgiveness. And he captured it, didn't he? So what is involved in this? Let's talk about repentance for a second. What is involved in genuine repentance? The nature of true repentance. Repentance is not merely acknowledging one's sin. We can acknowledge our sin in a very, very flippant way, you know that? Well, I know I'm a sinner. You don't have to remind me of that. We, we, can, we can do that. Repentance is not just merely acknowledging that we are one sin. It is more than remorse. There are a lot of people who feel sorry for what they've done, but yet there's no change in heart whatsoever. I'm going to tell you what my wife told me the other day, and I'm, being, I'm going to be very transparent with you. My, my, I wish you could meet Vicki. She is the best part of my life, I can tell you. God smiled on me. I outpunted my coverage. I did all of those things when God brought Vicki into my life. But we got into an argument the other day. Can y'all believe that? Listen, anybody that's married and says they never have an argument will lie to you about something else. So you better, you better not listen to that. We got into it over something. I can't even remember what it was. And typically, just like normal, I showed out. And I, you know, I went on, and we weren't speaking to each other. 
And finally, I realized that I wasn't going to get ahead by continuing to. So I had to man up and humble up and go and say, Vicki, I'm sorry for what I said and how I acted. You know what she said? I appreciate the apology. (laughs) But what I really want is not an apology, but a change in behavior. (laughs) Wow. Then I didn't talk to her the rest of the day. (laughs) Well, you know, you can feel remorse, but there's got to be a change in, 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 in attitude, in heart. So repentance is heartfelt honesty with God. Let me read you a psalm. Psalm 51. I'm just going to read part of it. But this psalm was written by a king who was very popular, who committed adultery, murder, and lied about it. Until one day a man named Nathan the prophet came and stood stood in front of him and told him a little story about a little ewe lamb, about a rich man who had uh, flocks and herds everywhere and a poor man that had one little ewe lamb. And a visitor came along and and instead of going to his flocks and herds and getting his, one of his animals to offer as a meal to his guest, he went down to the poor man's house, stole his lamb and killed it, and they ate it. When David heard that, he said, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan says, son, you're the man. You're the man. Didn't God give you all these things and what'd you do? You go, to, go down there and you steal the poor man's wife. Then you have him murdered and try to cover it up. The best thing David did was he got honest with God. And he prayed and he said these words, Be gracious to me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. So thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou judgest. Do you realize that in those four verses that he just about exhausts the whole Hebrew vocabulary for sin? And in his honesty with God, he's saying this, God, you call sin whatever you want to. You call it iniquity. You call it moral failure. You call it transgression. You call it evil. You call it whatever you want to, God. But God, I'm the one who's guilty. That's honest confession. And John tells us when we confess our sin that God is faithful and just to forgive us. So repentance is heartfelt honesty with God. It is also genuinely turning from sinful actions, attitudes, and behavior and turning to God. How many of you ever heard repentance described like a U-turn? How many of you heard that? Going down the highway, you realize you're going the wrong way and you make a U-turn and you come back. I'm going to tell you what the Holy Spirit does in the process of confession and repentance. I'm going to tell you what He does. He shows us our sin. He shows us our sin. 
And we see sin for what it is. It's rebellion. It's lawlessness. It's all those things. He shows us what it is. He shows us our sin. And we see the ugliness and the blackness of our sin. One of the things that I used to see when I was early in the ministry, I would see people come to the altar broken because of their sin. I've seen people come down weeping because of the sin. The Holy Spirit's convictions on them so heavy that all they, they, they came with brokenness. We come broken before God. But when he shows us our sin and we turn, he shows us our Savior. He shows us Jesus. And he shows us that God loved us so much that Jesus came and he bore our sins on the cross in his body, the just for the unjust, that we can come into a right relationship with God through him. That's what he does. And then... There's the joy of God's forgiveness. I was eating in a restaurant called the Southern Star. And I was there with our church staff. We were eating lunch, and this young lady comes, and she starts waiting on our table. And uh, her name was K is Kayla, and got to talk to Kayla. And we go down there and eat pretty often and start talking to Kayla. One day, Kayla came and said, Dr. Stan, can I come and talk with you? And she came to my office. We sat there with all the windows open and the doors open and all that. And she said, let me tell you my story. Kayla got caught up in drugs when she was young. She ended up in prison. And her life was a mess. And I sat there and talked to her. And Kayla said, I need a, a new start in my life. I need Jesus. And you know what happened? God gave her a brand new life. God specializes in new beginnings. You might be here tonight and there's some stuff going on in your life that you know is not pleasing to God. And God has sent me from Mississippi to Texas to tell you that he loves you. He sent me here to tell you that if you confess your sin, that he's faithful and just to forgive you, and he will give you a brand new beginning. Do you understand that God specializes in new beginnings? One of my friends, Brother Jay Whittington, Another 90-year-old man. I don't know why in the world I have so many wonderful senior adult friends. I've always had wonderful, godly guys that walk with Jesus who've been my friends. But Mr. Jay Whittington told me one time, he says, Dr. Stan, Jesus specializes in new beginnings. And then he chuckled and he said, and I need a bunch every day. That's wisdom, isn't it? And I do too. So we don't have to stay where we are. You're here tonight and there's something going on in your life and you need victory in your life, you can have it. And it's in Christ. 
and he loves you, and he'll give you that gift. What about the character of a habitual sinner? In 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 12. And how are we doing on time? We're still good. It's always good for the Baptist preacher to have a clock. But you know what a watch means to a Baptist preacher? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But in 1 John 3, 4 through 12, he, he says these things. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, in him there is no sin. He who abides in him, no, no one who abides in him sins. No one who has sin has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seeds abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So he's saying some things here. Now, first thing you see is this. Wait a minute now. He's saying anyone who knows Jesus cannot sin. Ooh, can you attain sinless perfection? The emphasis here, and this is where our translations leave us with some questions. The emphasis here is on habitual sin. And what he's saying is this. The person who says he knows Christ and yet continues to live an habitual sinful lifestyle really doesn't know Jesus. So how do you know that you know that you know him? How are you living? Are you, is your desire to, to, to be all that God wants you to be, to grow in your relationship with him? A person who says, I know Jesus, and, and there's no evidence in that individual's life that they know Christ is probably living a lie. What do you think? It's okay. What do you think? Probably so. So what about the habitual sinner? He carelessly disregards God's law and normalizes sinful behavior. Habitual sin marks his lifestyle and he excuses sinful behavior. He's motivated by the devil. He doesn't practice righteousness. But here's the kicker. He's totally self-centered. He does not love his brother and is living a spiritual lie the truth is not in him. The person who is totally self-centered is not Christ-centered. And he doesn't practice a, a, a lifestyle that, that even remotely shows that he knows Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And you know, I, I see this all the time. Some, someone asked me, says, Stan, how big was First Baptist Church of Crystal Springs? I said, well, on a good Sunday, we'd have 300. So on a good Sunday, we'd have 300. Maybe a little bit more. 
But if you go to the convention and somebody comes up, one of these preacher friends, and you say, well, how big's your church? They say, well, we got 1,200 members. Sounds better, doesn't it? Man, we got 1,200 members. Well, well, on any given Sunday, we can't find but 300 of them. What's wrong? I'm afraid there's a lot of people got the name on the church roll, but they don't have the name on God's roll. Billy Graham used to say that a lot of folks, most folks go to church, don't know Jesus. That might be true. I don't know that. I can't look at somebody else's heart. And I can't judge that. But what I can do is I can see whether there's evidence in an individual's life of whether they're walking with the Lord. Now, I have to deal with sin in my life. And you have to, too. And, and to be honest with you, I sometimes wonder how in the world God can love me. And I, I look at my life, and, and, and some, sometimes on Sunday mornings, and I got to get up and preach, I look at this man in the mirror and say, Stan Weatherford, how in the world... Can you stand up and preach when you know that you're a sinner? And the truth of the matter is this. I can tell you this. I sure want to be all God wants me to be. And I want to grow and I want to be the man that God wants me to be. And I am so thankful that God's grace is sufficient. And when we confess our sin, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what I am as a preacher? I'm one beggar telling another beggar where there's a piece of bread. The only thing good in me is Christ Himself. And I pray that Christ will be exalted in my life. What about you? And you know, that's the thing. The church is not made up of perfect people. It's not. We're all on this journey together. And that's why it's so important that we love each other. Because we've got to have each other in order to live a godly life. We need the church. We need each other to be all that God wants us to be. So how we deal with sin in our lives is a major test of assurance. The Holy Spirit speaking to our heart with conviction and with comfort. He's bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And how you deal with sin in your life is the test of whether you know Jesus or not. But God's given us something else. A digression for just a minute on Jesus as our paraclete, as our advocate. John says, 
You know, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation of our, for our sin, and not only for ours, but the sin of the whole world. What does an advocate do? He takes up our case, doesn't he? Now, what you don't want to do is get a picture in your mind that he's trying to make God happy because God's mad because we're, we've sinned. That's not the picture. That's not the picture at all. But how did Jesus show that he is our advocate? He became the propitiation for our sin. Now, propitiation, I don't think, is the right translation for the Greek word haliosmos that is translated either propitiation or expiation. I'll say this because propitiation is something that pagan folks did to try to appease a pagan god. And we don't, and, and, and Jesus' sacrifice was not an appeasement. Instead, it was an expiation. It was a sacrifice for our sin. In other words, what he did was this. He died on the cross for our sins. His death became our atoning sacrifice. God loved us so much that he sent an atoning sacrifice. And that atoning sacrifice was the perfect sinless son of God. As God moved for us and showed us how much he's for us. God is not for, for, uh, against us, he's for us. And Jesus is the one who intercedes in our behalf before the throne of God. One of these days, I'm going to stand before the Lord. He's going to say, Stan, why should I let you into my heaven? And you know what I'm going to say? Because I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. And that's the only way I'm going to go to heaven is because He is the atoning sacrifice for my sin.